Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is sponsored by Casper Mattresses and Stamps.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I'm reporting to you today from right in the middle of the lion's den in Tyler, Texas. As all of you know, this week, Carrie Max Cook's actual innocence hearing has been postponed. But I still had a trip planned for down here. I had all my travel arrangements made, so I decided to go ahead and come down anyway and spend the week working on Ed Aids's case. There's tons to do in that case, and I already have several leads. So for this week, this episode... I'm going to take you on this journey with me. I'll be recording several times throughout the day, each day that I'm here. I'm hoping to record some interviews, and I'll recap every evening with the day's events. Today is Monday, April 11th, and I want to start with the first stop after my arrival into Tyler this afternoon. I got into town today about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I spent the morning on the bus and in the airports, frantically emailing back and forth with a couple of local residents and Darby Dickerson from the Texas Tech University School of Law. A local Tyler resident gave me some information last night that could prove to be a huge break in the Kenny Snow and Edward Eight's case. I'm not ready to talk about it just yet until I finish vetting all the sources, but by the end of the episode, I'll let you know what's going on. So as I got into town, my first stop was the Smith County Courthouse. I've been emailing back and forth and talking on the phone with several of the clerks in the office, and they've been pulling aside some of the 8-8's files for me to make sure that they're there and available for me when I get into town. The courthouse was just about to close, but I wanted to make sure I stopped in, because one of the clerks had mentioned to me over the phone that April 11th was her birthday. So I swung into the local CVS, ran in, got her a nice birthday card, and a dozen white roses. This was a combination of just a nice gesture, a thank you for all the help she's given me, and maybe just a little bit of buttering her up to make sure that I can continue to get all the documents that I need from that courthouse. So when I got to the courthouse, I ran upstairs and found an empty desk sitting there with all sorts of gifts and cards all over it. I'm hoping she just treated herself to a day off on her birthday and wasn't actually feeling under the weather. But several of the other clerks came over and helped me to get a vase with some water to make sure the flower stayed alive until she gets back tomorrow. Then they helped me to locate where all the files were that she had set aside for me to make sure they were ready for me tomorrow and also helped answer a few questions that I had about some local matters. So I'm planning to spend a long day in the courthouse tomorrow, reading and scanning tons and tons of documents. After I left the courthouse, I decided to make the trip out to the actual crime scene in the Ed Eight's case. I wasn't necessarily going out there to look at the crime scene. I was looking for Ed's mother. Ed had given me what he thought was his mother's phone number, but turns out it was the wrong number. But he said that last he knew, she was living in his grandmother's old house which was the house that he was living in back when the murder occurred back in 1994. So I crossed my fingers and I headed out to old U.S. Highway 31. 
But when I got there, the house that Ed had described to me was empty. The lawn was all grown up, and it was clear no one had lived in that house for a while. So I wandered down to the hill, towards the trailer where the murder occurred. Just like it was described in the police reports, there was one house between Ed's house and Elnora Griffin's house. The police report said that that house was owned by her cousin, Johnny. So I decided to give it a try, and I went and knocked on the door. And a nice lady answered the door. She was sweet and probably a little bit paranoid about the six-foot-one, bearded, tattooed white guy knocking on her door. But she answered, and I started asking her if she knew where Ed's mother, Maggie, might be living or if she knew her. She said she wasn't sure. He said that Ed's grandma had died last year and his mom had moved out of the house. And she thinks she's still in town somewhere, but she wasn't sure where. I started to explain to her that I'd come there because I was talking to her son who was in prison, of course not realizing who I was talking to. And she said, oh yeah, Edward. He went to prison after he killed my cousin. And it kind of shocked me. I was really kind of taken aback. Because she said it with such confidence. And really without much emotion. I didn't really know what to say right then, so I asked her if I could look around. I wanted to see the area in the house that Ed had described in the interview, whereas he said they had an open sewer line. She told me that I was welcome to poke around, so I went back up to Ed and his mother's and grandmother's house. I saw the area that looked to be what was an old septic drain field that was oversaturated. It was dried up now because the house has been empty for over a year, but you could tell by the way the grass was growing there that that's definitely where the drain field was, and you could tell by the mud there that it had definitely been wet at one time not too long ago. I took some pictures of the house and some other photos of the view from where Ed's house was situated and Elnora's trailer was. I figured there wasn't much more I could do there, and I went to go get back in my car, when all of a sudden it occurred to me that I'm investigating this murder case, and one thing I hadn't considered was the fact that this woman who I had just spoken to is the closest living relative to the woman who was murdered, the victim. I thought about it for a minute, and I decided that she deserved to know what I was doing. I mean, the ultimate goal here is not only to free the wrongfully convicted, but to bring justice, not only to Edward Eights, but to the victim and the victim's family. So I went back up to the house where she was waiting at the door, and I told her who I was, and that I investigate cases of possible wrongful convictions, and that's what had put me in contact with Edward Eights. I explained to her the whole story of how it started with Kenny Snow, and that led into Edward Eights, and that I've started digging into the entire DA's office in Smith County and how I believe the corruption there is what has caused all these wrongful convictions. And she heard me out, and I couldn't even really tell if she was interested in what I was saying. I mean, she was listening, but she wasn't really saying much. She didn't look angry or upset. So then I asked her. I said, Johnny, when I first came to your door, you kind of nonchalantly said that Edward killed your cousin. And she said, yes, that's right. And I said, can I ask you, how do you know that? Why are you so confident that Ed is the one that killed her? And she kind of stood back for a minute and thought and said, well, I don't know. The police arrested him. He got convicted. I really don't know what happened in his trial. She went on further to explain that she was the one that had found the body, so she had to go to trial and testify. But because she was a witness, she was sequestered. She could only be in there during the short portion when she testified, and so she didn't get to hear anything else that happened in the trial. And she said it's the same thing with her friend Kubia and anyone else that testified. None of these people actually know what went on in that trial. All they know is that Edward Eights was convicted of this murder, and so he must be guilty. So 
I went on to tell her that I've done some investigating of the case and I've looked through some of the evidence in the police files. And at this point, I believe there's a really good likelihood that Edward Ace was innocent and that he wasn't the one that murdered her. We ended up talking for over an hour. She told me that she always thought it was kind of funny that Edward would have been sitting over there with Elnora. I mean, Edward was 22 or 23 years old and Elnora was in her 40s. She was actually a friend of his grandmother's. She said it never really made sense to her, but she hadn't put much thought into it. I told her about the blood and semen found at the crime scene and how they didn't match Elnora or Edward. I guess if I had to put a word on it, I would say that she was stunned. She's not the kind of woman that shows much emotion. And the whole time I was thinking that, God, I would love to have this interview and let you all hear her voice. But the whole conversation with her was just one of those moments. It reminded me of having long conversations with my grandmothers. She was telling stories and talking about friends. And it was a conversation that I just didn't want to stop. And I didn't want to hit pause on it to go get the recorder. And beyond that, I didn't want to ask her to record this. So I just let her keep telling her story. And when we were finished chatting, we exchanged phone numbers. She's going to try and help me get in touch with some of the other witnesses and with Edward's mother. I drove away with kind of a chill running down my spine. I investigate these cases, and I know that they're about real people. And there are real people that have been affected by all of these stories. But to look this woman in the eye and have a conversation with her, the woman that opened the door to that trailer, to see her cousin that she was so close to. They both worked at the same place. They had dinner together at Edward's grandmother's house every night. They were as close as cousins could be. And one evening, she opened that door and saw that cousin laying on the floor, completely naked with her throat slit. You could tell by looking into Johnny's eyes that she's had a tough life. I don't know how to put it into words or describe it, but you can just see it in her eyes that that wasn't the worst thing that's ever happened to this woman. But in any case, it did happen to her, and she does deserve justice. And that's why I won't stop in this case at just releasing Edward Aids. I think that we can solve this murder and find out who really killed Elnora Griffin. After I left Johnny's house, it was on to some important work. It was time to go check out the Rose City Draft House to figure out if it would be a good place for us to have our meetup tomorrow night and, of course, to sample one or two of their beers while I was there. It was a cool place. I stopped and had dinner. And then as I was heading back to the hotel, a Texas-sized storm moved in. The sky went from blue to black in a matter of seconds, and it took me about 30 minutes to drive the 9 miles from the draft house back to my hotel. In Texas, even the raindrops are big. It was coming down so hard you couldn't see even with the windshield wipers on full blast. But finally I made it back to the hotel, put on some dry clothes, and sat down to recap my day. As I did, I sat here with the rain pouring down outside, reading through all of my emails, and I found out that tomorrow morning at 9.30 a.m., there's an open hearing scheduled for the Smith County public to weigh in on whether or not Joel Baker should resign. He's the judge that was just caught in that sexting scandal. He's had charges of sexual harassment against him. 
and I'm thinking, what better place to get some great interviews with some locals than an open hearing on a judge's misconduct? That'll be my first stop in the morning. On the morning of day two, I started off by going to the Smith County Commissioner's Court meeting, where they would be discussing Judge Joel Baker's alleged misconduct. I walked into a courtroom filled with about 35 to 40 Smith County residents, and it was definitely a really interesting experience. One of the locals afterwards explained to me that I was sitting in the buckle of the Bible Belt. I've never seen this type of thing going on in a courtroom. The first thing that I noticed when I walked in was that there was a great big sign behind all the commissioners that read, In God We Trust. Now, as you all know, I'm a Christian myself, so I don't have a problem with the sign, but I respect everyone's faiths and even people without any kind of organized faith. And it just really struck me that that was in a court of law in Smith County. The session began with an opening prayer, the Pledge of Allegiance, and then the Pledge to the Texas Flag. The hearing started out with public comment, and a few of the local residents got up calling for the resignation of Judge Joel Baker. Baker, who was the one that was actually running the meeting, definitely ruled with a sense of, I don't know if I would call it arrogance, I'm not sure what the word is, but he basically acted like the residents weren't speaking about him, and that he had every right to be there, and that he was going to run this meeting. Once they finally got to the item in the agenda where they were discussing his discretions and what should be done about it, I was really amazed at what I heard. Just two weeks prior, two of the county board members in the open meeting had called for his resignation. But in this meeting, they changed their tune. I, I, for the last few weeks, I've tried to remain silent. It was extremely hard for me, and many of y'all know me quite well. And um, I teach little kids Sunday school, two-year-old, for a reason I actually like them better than teaching adults. But um, I'm just amazed that, that some of the calls and some of the that I've received, uh, based on some of the so-called investigations. We're, we're cited, actually, even today, an attorney general is not only under investigation, but has been indicted and charged. Yeah. Nobody up here has been charged, whether there's an investigation about us or anybody else. I don't really know what they may be investigating. But to ask us not to serve or support somebody until they're actually convicted of something, if ever, to me is, is outside of what we, as Republicans particularly, said we believe in is due process. That's what it's called. That's what I signed up for, you know, that we have, now if somebody wants to step down for some other reason or personal reasons, whatever, I support that. But my job as commissioner is to uphold the laws of the state of Texas and the Constitution of the United States of America. In saying that, everybody up here is required to due process. That's what it is. Now, if we're going to pick and choose the, the candidates or the policies or procedures that we want, then I don't understand what I'm doing as a conservative. But I'm sorry, I've been sitting a long time. I've gotten a lot of calls from some dear Christian friends of mine that when I search the Bible and find what words I'm supposed to use, I couldn't find any of them uh, that they were giving back to me. You know, I was like, I'm looking for the verse that says I'm supposed to stone somebody. But I didn't find that one. So that's, uh, anyway, maybe that's the reason I stay over in the children's building, but I just want to get that off my chest. And so. <laughs> After hearing this, it was obvious that I was indeed sitting in the buckle of the Bible Belt. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. After the meeting, I got a hold of a few of the residents that had spoke at the meeting and some other concerned citizens. We stood outside the courthouse for about an hour just chatting about what was going on in the district attorney's office and the corruption that is embedded so deeply within the Smith County justice system. It was incredible to listen to these people. It seems like lots of the people in this area know what's going on, but they're afraid to speak about it. There was even a reporter there from the Tyler Morning Telegraph. I may have been a little harsh with her, but I was hoping to make an impact. I told her that as I've researched these cases, it's occurred to me that the reason that these people have been allowed to get away with this for so long really rests solely on the shoulders of the local media. If you Google the Carrie Max Cook case, You'll notice every publication from the Dallas Morning News to Texas Monthly to other publications around the country. Carrie Max Cook's case is described as one of the worst cases of prosecutorial misconduct in not only Texas history, but U.S. history. But if you read the articles written in the Tyler Morning Telegraph, all they tell you over the years is that Carrie Max Cook is a pervert and a maniac and a predator. And he's the man that killed Linda Joe Edwards. I asked this reporter why they don't report on all of the discretions that have been documented within the Smith County justice system. And she started making excuses to me about low staffing and they don't have a court reporter anymore. And it was obvious she was uncomfortable and she was trying to make excuses. I told her that I'd been reading the Tyler Morning Telegraph for several weeks leading up to Cook's hearing and it was never even mentioned. She again told me how overworked and understaffed that they are. And I told her I've read page-long articles about dog parks and everything else that's happened in this community. Admittedly, I kind of got on my high horse with her. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'm angry about this. There's a cycle that's happening in Smith County, and it's been happening for decades. The local law enforcement and the prosecutors work together. And they work together to bring whatever type of justice they deem is necessary. And they're protected by the judges. In Kerry Max Cook's case alone, the reason that he was convicted at his third trial in 1994 is because the prosecutor submitted a motion to exclude all of the defense's evidence, their expert witnesses, any evidence that impeached the witnesses that the state would be calling, and the judge approved it. He approved it both in 1992 and again in 1994, and they're still playing the same games today. Like I told you last week, leading up to the hearing before it got canceled, the state had filed a motion to suppress 80 items of evidence that the defense would be bringing to that hearing. So the prosecutors and the police get away with whatever they want to because the judges take care of them. 
They tie one or both hands behind the backs of the defense before they go into trial, and they have no chance to win. But furthermore, the local media refuses to report on any of the misconduct. So there's no consequences for these people for what they're doing. I told this young reporter that the purpose of the media from the inception of news media was to inform the citizens, the voters, about what's going on with the people that they are voting for. And they are failing miserably. And again, she had several excuses. She was obviously uncomfortable, and she excused herself from the conversation and walked away. After she left, the conversation continued with these four people who don't want their names revealed and don't want to go on record. One of the gentlemen that I was interviewing summed the situation up in Smith County perfectly. In Smith County, if you buck the good old boys, you can anticipate that there will be retribution And there's actually businessmen who have been basically run out of town. This is the world that the people of Smith County live in. And this is the type of behavior they were going to bring a stop to. I have to admit, I was encouraged by this conversation. After we were done talking... One of the gentlemen that I was speaking to offered to buy me lunch at the Jack Ryan Steakhouse in downtown Tyler. Myself and three of the people that were participating in this conversation all met there for lunch. These were good guys. They were white guys. Guys with some money. Guys from the right side of the tracks. But they're guys that understand what's going on. They're tired of the segregation. They're tired of the racism. They're tired of the misconduct. They're all involved in some way in all these different grassroots organizations within Tyler that are trying to buck the system anonymously. There's a local blog here that I was unaware of. It's called Jury Duty. That's J-O-O-R-I-E-D-O-O-T-Y. It's another person from Tyler who's sick of the misconduct, and he's sick of what's happening here. But again, this person fears the establishment and remains anonymous because he knows there'll be retribution for bucking the system. But we're starting to gain headway here. We're starting to be heard. After I left lunch, I went into the Smith County Courthouse to start making copies of all of the exhibits and all the evidence in the Edward Aids case. When I walked in, I slid my backpack through the metal detector and emptied my pockets. I had my recording equipment and my portable scanner. And after I went through security, which is run by Smith County Deputy Sheriffs, packed everything back up, and started to walk up the stairs to the clerk's office. One of the deputies came up from behind me and grabbed me by the arm. I turned around and he leaned into me, and he whispered in my ear, I appreciate you, brother. And then he turned around and walked back to the security station. I was stunned. I couldn't even move for a minute. It took me a little while to process what had just happened. This is a man working within that system. He's a Smith County deputy sheriff. And he knew who I was. He recognized me. And it was a complex situation because he made sure to take the time to take those few steps and grab me by the arm and let me know that he appreciates what I'm doing, which is amazing. It lets me know that there's still good in this world. There's still good in this county and in this city that I'm sitting in right now. That not everyone in the Smith County Sheriff's Department, and I'm sure not everyone within the Tyler Police Department, agrees with the corruption that's happening here. And that's encouraging. But at the same time, this guy felt the need that he had to whisper that in my ear. He almost looked afraid. 
As soon as he said it, he looked around and made sure nobody was watching and walked back to his post and never looked back. It was like receiving a subtle message. Someone from the inside letting me know that we're on your side and we want to fight this. But we need your voice because we can't speak out publicly. If any of the local Tyler or Smith County residents that are listening to this, know this, that I will be your voice. Talk to me. I will keep your name anonymous. And together we will expose these frauds with a united front. And we will bring this system down. When I went upstairs and turned left into the clerk's offices, I was greeted with nothing but smiles. I even got a hug from the clerk who I had bought the flowers for for her birthday. And there, sitting waiting for me, was the entire case file for Edward Eights, along with the box of all the evidence and exhibits. They'd all been pulled aside and were waiting for me to get there. I asked the clerks if it would be okay if I used my personal scanner instead of paying for copies for all of the papers that I needed. We went back and asked the head clerk, and she gave me permission to use my scanner. Today's task was going through that evidence file and either scanning or taking photos of every single piece of evidence and exhibit that was used at Edward Eight's trial. While the clerk was still standing close, I asked her if she could help me track down the transcripts from Eight's trial, because I've been running into dead ends trying to locate them. About ten minutes into my work, she came marching in with two huge boxes. She said she'd made some calls, and she had located the full set of transcripts for Eight's 1998 trial for me. So there I was, sitting with everything that I needed, all of the documentation that I need to send to the Innocence Project to get working on Edward Eight's case. I put on my smart guy costume, that's when I put my glasses on, and I got to work. Scanning. And scanning. And scanning. All the ladies that work in that office were moving about, and several of them stopped to talk to me. They remembered me from being there before. Some of them asked what I was doing. Because I had the evidence box for Edward Eight's trial, there had to be somebody babysitting me the entire time while that evidence box was out. It's just one of the protocols. They have to make sure they maintain the chain of custody, and they have to make sure I don't take anything out of the box. So they all worked in shifts hanging out with me. You need a babysitter? And none of them seemed to mind. Every one of them that was there was looking through the evidence with me and talking to me about the case. Most of them had been there long enough that they remember when this case occurred. And every single one of them told me that they believed that Edward Aids was innocent. So I scanned and I scanned. And I scanned some more and I scanned some more. Just before the courthouse closed down, I scanned through the very last crime scene photo and I was done with the exhibit box. I packed my stuff up, nearly blind from looking at these documents all day long, and looked over at this massive box of trial transcripts. I don't know if you guys know this, but when you think of a trial transcript, I just thought of a document, a big document. But Edward Eight's trial transcripts take up an entire file box. 27 volumes, about 200 pages each. It's every word that was spoken in that trial. I was thankful at that moment that it was 5 o'clock and the courthouse was closing because I was ready to get back to the hotel, lay down for a few minutes before I headed out to the fan meetup that we had scheduled for tonight. When I got back to my hotel, I called my wife Becky and checked on her and the kids and chatted about our days for a little bit. 
and I laid in bed staring at the ceiling, thinking about the last thing that I had found in those files. As all of you know, I've been searching for the transcripts from Kenny Snow's sentencing hearing for over two months. At first, the court reporter was ready, willing, and able to get these transcripts for me. But then there was delay after delay after delay, and eventually she stopped returning my emails. I needed these transcripts to figure out if Kenny had been telling me the truth that there was a man at his sentencing hearing that presented himself as Bill Cole and gave a statement. I was right at the point of giving up when I opened the last envelope in the exhibit box for Edward Eight's case. And lo and behold, what do I find in Edward Eight's exhibit file? But the transcripts from Kenny Snow's November 12, 1998 sentencing hearing. It did exist. It had been transcribed. And there was a copy sitting right in front of me. I was almost afraid to look at it. I've recently learned that Texas state law prohibits a victim's statements from being recorded on the record. They're supposed to be anonymous. They're not just redacted, but the court reporter isn't even allowed to write anything or take any notes during a victim statement period. So it was really a long shot to find these transcripts, but at least I had them. My hope was that someone somewhere in the transcripts made mention that Bill Cole had been in that courtroom. And then I found it. On page 52 of the transcript of Kenny Snow's sentencing hearing, it reads like this. The judge said, Okay, the pre-sentence investigation, and certainly I'm going to take into consideration everything that is said here in this pre-sentence investigation and the prior hearing where Mr. Cole was here. You remember what Mr. Cole said. I mean, Mr. Cole was the victim of this offense. And there it is, folks. Proof. Solid, documented evidence that someone was in that courtroom saying that they were Bill Cole and giving a victim statement. And we have a recorded statement from Bill Cole stating that he has never been in that courtroom on this case. Prior to speaking with me, and we spoke the first time about three or four weeks ago, were you aware that Kenny Snow's sentence was deferred? I had no idea what it was. So you didn't know what his sentence was? Didn't know or didn't have a clue. Did you appear at his sentencing hearing and give a statement? Nope. Okay. You heard him in his interview, and I have a separate recorded statement from him saying that after he had signed off on the mugshot, he never heard from the police or the prosecution ever again on this case until he got a check in the mail a couple of years later. But here it is in black and white. Where Mr. Cole was here. It goes on to say at the top of page 53, I think that Mr. Martinez has not been found. Is that correct? He is missing. The prosecutor says, that's correct, Judge. And again, I want to point out that Mr. Martinez's son said that his dad continued to run his business and work there six days a week for years after this offense. They also continued to live in the same home. That same home where Bobby Van Ness claims to have gone to to have him look at mugshot books. And yet, for some reason, they couldn't find him for this sentencing hearing. Just like I mentioned last week, all of these things seem to tie in together. And in the most unlikely place, I finally found the document. Written, documented proof of this egregious 
insane prosecutorial misconduct that the Smith County DA's office had an imposter show up into that courtroom and pretend to be Bill Cole in order to finish executing the sentence against Kenny Snow. I now have the proof, and I'm going to make sure the world knows, and I'm going to make sure that the people of Tyler, Texas, know what's happening in that courthouse. After I was done spacing out thinking about these cases, I got ready to head out to the meetup with some of the local listeners. But I'd run into a bit of a problem. The place where we all decided to meet was in the south end of Tyler. I'd been staying in the north end of Tyler. Not familiar with the area, I didn't realize there are no restaurants or bars in this end of town. This would be the other side of the tracks where I'm staying. And there was no way in hell I was going to go 10 miles away to the other side of town and have a few beers and drive back here. But luckily, the Truth and Justice Army came to the rescue. Some local listeners who would help me figure out where we should do the meetup offered to drive up here and pick me up and take me down to the meetup. So Kara and Jason messaged me and let me know they were coming and that Kara would be the designated driver. And so just like anything else, whenever there's a need, whenever there's a question, you listeners always come through. Hey, Jason. Oh my goodness. In the flesh. How you doing? How's it going, man? Good to meet you. The meetup was a lot of fun. There was about 15 or 20 local residents there. Some of the guys that I went out to lunch with had showed up. And these are always fun because everybody gets together and they get to know one another. But this one was really interesting because most of the people there were local Tyler natives. And it's amazing how everyone seems to know everyone and everyone seems to know what's going on. I spent a lot of time kind of sitting back and observing the conversations. It was frustrating to hear that so many of these people have inside information for some of these cases, especially Carrie Max Cook's case. But no one wants to go on the record. Everyone's afraid of what will happen to them if they go up against the district attorney's office. There was one person there who doesn't want to be named and doesn't want to be on the record. So I won't give you any more details than that. But this person was telling me that he had first-hand knowledge that when Carrie Max Cook was arrested, that night, the police and the prosecutors who were pushing this case forward knew that he was not the one that committed that crime. They knew it back then, that night. They were protecting someone that came from the other side of the tracks, the good side of the tracks. That information makes Carrie Max Cook's case even more disgusting than it already was. These people didn't just ruin his life, but they made his life for 22 years a living hell. Since then, Carrie's been out, he's married, he has a child, but he still has to deal with not only the experiences he went through during those 22 years that he was incarcerated, but also carrying around the moniker of being a convicted murderer for all of these years. And not only was he falsely convicted, but the people who convicted him, the people that smeared his name all over the media, the people that said that he was a pervert and a predator and a rapist and a murderer, knew that he didn't do it. And yet still today, in 2016, the Smith County District Attorney's Office is still fighting his exoneration. And the only thing that the people of Tyler know 
the people without inside information, is what's reported in the Tyler Morning Telegraph, which is quite simply that Carrie Max Cook is a sick and twisted, perverted, homosexual predator who raped and murdered a woman. Because that newspaper refuses to report what's really happening. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel. While I was at that meetup, I received an email back, finally, from one of the Tyler Morning Telegraph reporters. I had reached out to him a few days ago and asked if he'd be willing to meet with me and talk about the corruption that's going on in that courthouse. And he agreed to meet me tomorrow morning for coffee. It's not much, but it's a start. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's day three now. And at 10 a.m. this morning, I met with a reporter from the Tyler Morning Telegraph. We had coffee at the Foundry Coffee Shop, just right down the street from the Smith County Courthouse. He asked me about the cases that I was working on, and he took copious notes while we were sitting there. When we were done talking about the cases, he said that he was interested in the story. And in fact, he thinks it'll make a great story. He asked me if I would send him any of the source documents or anything I have so we can start developing it. And then I asked him, have you discussed this with your editor? Do they know what you're working on? He's new to the Telegraph. He's only been there for a few months. And he said, well, no, he hadn't discussed it with him yet, but he didn't think it would be a problem. I filled him in on what the real story in Tyler is. That the real story is that the Tyler Morning Telegraph and the KLTV news station for decades have refused to report on the misconduct coming out of that building. And that I appreciate his willingness to tell this story. And I hope and pray that it happens. But I warned him that he's probably going to face some pressure from above him. If not the editors, the owners of the paper, who I'm told by the locals are old money in Tyler. They're connected to all the big wigs in this town from way back. And from what I'm told by the locals, they are the ones, the owners, that refuse to allow anything to be reported in a negative light for the district attorney's office. At the end of the meeting, we stood up, we shook hands, and he said he's going to see what he can do. And I'm going to follow through and send him all the case documents that I have to help him build a story. And let's all hope that this story finally gets printed. When I left the meeting, I headed back to my favorite place, the Smith County Courthouse. I sat down, set up my scanner, that by the way was provided to me by a listener. I've said several times that there are so many ways people can help out, and this is something that I never thought of. The help that comes from all of you comes in the form of encouraging words, helping to research, putting me in touch with contacts, raising funds for causes. And this listener asked me before I came on this trip if I could use a small portable scanner instead of paying for all the copies when I go get these court files. It was something I had never thought of before. And what an amazing gesture. I want to thank listener Paul Allen for not only coming up with the idea, but even paying for and shipping me this new scanner that probably saved me about $5,000 this week were the documents. So I sat down, I set the scanner up, and I opened up the box. 
this huge box with thousands of pages of documents, and I got to work right away. The only problem with a portable scanner is they can only hold about 20 pieces of paper at a time. Each volume of these transcripts was about 200 pages long. But after a little while, I got the hang of putting 20 pages in, and about every 10 pages in, putting another 10 pages in, and keeping it going so I would end up with one file. It took me from the morning time all the way until two minutes before the courthouse closed, but I was finally able to scan in the entire set of Ed Aid's trial transcripts. As soon as I get back into the office, those transcripts will be going to two places. I'll be sending them up to the Texas Innocence Project and over to the Texas Tech School of Law for all the law students that have been helping us along the way to start reviewing them. I'll also be putting those transcripts up on the truthandjusticepod.com website, along with several other documents, like Kenny Snow's sensing hearing transcripts, in one document that I think could make a huge difference in Edward Aids' case. It's a document that initially led me to believe that Edward Aids is innocent. This is the lab report that I found in the discovery file, where the blood and semen that were found on Elnora Griffin's bed were sent to the lab for testing, and the results came back that neither the blood nor the semen found on that bed, which is where the struggle began, belonged to either Edward Aits or Elnora Griffin. Whoever killed Elnora Griffin was injured in the struggle. There was a knife involved that was eventually used to slit her throat, and I believe that the killer was cut by that knife. And I believe that because we know there's blood in the bedroom on the bed, and the mattress is pushed aside and the covers are ripped off the bed, you could tell there was quite a struggle there. And we know that blood does not belong to Elnora, and we also know it doesn't belong to Edward Aids. And also, when examining the crime scene photos, you can see the path of the struggle, going from the bedroom into the living room where Miss Griffin was finally killed. And the killer exited the trailer through the kitchen. This is where the feces footprint was placed, right in the middle of that kitchen. But there's something else in that kitchen. There's blood drops, several of them. And if you look at the blood splatter, which I'm not a blood spatter expert, but I know from tracking deer throughout the years, you can tell by droplets of blood which direction someone is moving that's bleeding. And you can see that there are blood droplets that have dropped straight down. Whoever was bleeding there was not moving. There are several drops where those blood droplets drop straight down onto the floor, which means they could have only come from the killer, because Elnora never made it into that kitchen. And I'm still waiting for the police reports and the evidence collection from the Smith County Sheriff's Department. They've been ignoring my request. But nowhere in trial was it introduced that they had ever taken any samples of that blood and sent it for testing. I'm hoping that they have and that evidence is still on file. Because that blood in that kitchen, if we can get a DNA test that proves it did not belong to Edward Aids, should be enough for a full exoneration. Because there is no explanation for that blood other than the killer walked into that kitchen after he had murdered Elnora Griffin. And beyond that, I have another request for you listeners. With the hundreds of thousands of you spread out across the world, I'm hoping that someone has the equipment and the expertise to do this. As I've told you before, Miss Griffin was being strangled at one point and had defecated throughout the house. The killer had stepped in this at some point during the struggle. And when they left the residence, they put that footprint in the middle of the kitchen floor. I have a high-resolution, close-up photo of that footprint. Now, the footprint is on old, marbled linoleum, and it's kind of a yellow, tannish, brown color. So it's hard to make out the exact tread that made the footprint. But I believe that someone with the expertise and the right technology can filter out that photo 
and leave us with a clear image of what that footprint looked like. This is not something that I have the expertise or the equipment to do. If any of you have the ability to do that, email me and I will send you the photo. Until I get a result back from that, I will not be posting photos of the tread from Edward Eight's shoes. I don't want any possibility of anyone making an accusation that whoever enhances this photo had Edward Eight's tread to look at. I don't want anything manipulated. I just want to see what that footprint looks like so that I can compare it to the tread on Edward Eight's shoes, which I was holding in my hand today and have several photos of. This, again, could be a smoking gun to prove Edward Eight's innocence if we can get a solid footprint and it does not match the tread on his shoe. So if you have the ability to do this, please send me an email to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. And you could be a huge part to building the case to get Edward Eights exonerated. The last thing that I want to talk about today is something that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Since the beginning of this case, I have never been able to figure out how Dennis Murphy could be connected to all of this. Kenny Snow continues to insist that Dennis Murphy was pressuring him to give this testimony against Edward Eights, and that he looked him in the eye and told him that he will see Edward Eights convicted before he retires. It has just never made any sense to me. Dennis Murphy and the FBI were not involved with Edward Eights' case. So why in the world would he care if he was convicted? Well, there's one thing that I noticed this week when I was rereading Kerry Max Cook's book, Chasing Justice. There's an overlap there. And I think there's an explanation as to why all of a sudden Edward Eights became a priority after being freed for almost five years after his hung jury. You see, Ed Eights' hung jury was an embarrassment to the Smith County DA's office. This was another case that they highly publicized. And they painted Ed Eights in the media as a horrible person and a predator. And then they couldn't obtain a conviction. It was a slap in the face to the DA's office. But his case lay dormant for years. But in 1996, Kerry Max Cook's third conviction was thrown out by a higher court. And in that ruling, David Dobbs and Jack Skeen, along with A.D. Clark, were ripped a new one by the majority opinion. The opinion stated, and I'm paraphrasing, that the egregious levels of prosecutorial misconduct and police misconduct in this case all the way back from the beginning have tainted the case so much that they don't know if Kerry Max Cook would ever be able to receive a fair trial. This was a huge embarrassment to Skeen and Dobbs. Because one of the major issues was the fact that David Dobbs told Kerry Max Cook's defense that they couldn't find missing pages of the grand jury testimony where Robert Hohen had testified that he was watching a movie and that Kerry Max Cook wasn't paying any attention to it, that they had went to the pool, got some cigarettes, and came back, and that was it. Now his testimony changed greatly at trial. And the reasoning behind that was that in the late 70s in Texas, homosexuality was actually a crime. It was a way for pressure to be put on to Robert Hohen to testify in the way that the DA's office wanted them to. So he changed the story at trial, but that grand jury testimony would have been enough to impeach his testimony and show the jurors that he was lying and he had changed his story. But the pages where he testified in the grand jury were missing, and David Dobbs claimed that he didn't know where they were. But after the trial, while the jury was deliberating, 
Carrie Max Cook's attorney, Paul Nugent, walked out into the hallway of the courthouse and saw David Dobbs sitting there reading something. He pulled the paper out of his hands, and what David Dobbs was sitting there reading was the grand jury testimony of Robert Hohen. The pages that had been missing were in Dobbs' hand. And not only did he fail to disclose this to the defense that he had them, but he intentionally hid that fact from the defense. So when that conviction got thrown out, Dobbs was embarrassed. And so was Skeen. And then furthermore, in 1997, Carrie Max Cook, after 22 years being incarcerated, was finally granted bond and was released to go home. This was Dobbs and Skeen's worst nightmare. And I believe that plays a big part into why they brought Ed Aids back to trial and why they tried so hard to convict him. They needed a win. It was in 1997 when Aids was brought back on a bond violation. It was in 1997 when they convinced Kenny Snow to lie and testify to get Edward Aids convicted. So I understand better now the motivation and why the prosecution did what they did. But that still doesn't explain Dennis Murphy. Why would he be involved? Now I have to preface this by saying that I still don't know that he was involved. I'm still on paper taking Kenny Snow's word for this. But I have to admit, there was a time that I had a hard time believing Kenny Snow because his claims seemed so crazy that I couldn't believe they actually happened. But so far, every single allegation Kenny Snow has made to me, I have found corroborating evidence to support it. Even today I found, when Dennis Murphy on the show said there was only one occasion where he happened to go down and he met Kenny Snow the one time and got that piece of paper from him. When I read the transcripts from the sentencing hearing where Murphy testified on his behalf, he talked about the fact that Kenny Snow was an informant on another case that he was working, a case involving a man with the last name of Fuller. Kenny did legitimately have information that was stated by this man in jail, and Murphy had been working with him to bring that testimony to trial. He stated that with his own words in those transcripts. He further stated that he was down visiting Kenny on multiple occasions dealing with the Edward Eights case. So in the beginning, we had Kenny Snow saying that Murphy was there multiple times and was working with Dobbs in order to get this testimony together to convict Edward Eights. And we had Dennis Murphy saying there was one time that he happened to be walking through the courthouse and David Dobbs grabbed him and he took this piece of paper from Kenny Snow. Well, just on those two facts alone, I now know for a fact that Kenny Snow's version of the events was far more accurate than Special Agent Dennis Murphy's version of the events. But a Tyler local here gave me some more information that's even more disturbing. In the early 2000s, there was a new assistant district attorney appointed to the Smith County District Attorney's Office. It was a man named Joseph Murphy. This local listener who wants to remain anonymous told me that they had first-hand knowledge that ADA Joseph Murphy is Dennis Murphy's son and that he was appointed to that office by Jack Skeen, who this listener claims is a personal family friend of Dennis Murphy. I put local resources that I trust on this, and we did some research, and sure enough, Joseph Dean Murphy, while he was still in law school, was a working student at the Smith County's District Attorney's Office, and his direct supervisor was Chief District Attorney Jack Skeen. I've been told that this is unheard of. The supervising attorney in a situation like this is almost always, if not always, a line attorney. Because the way this works is, the person supervising must be in the courtroom any time and every time the student attorney is working. A district attorney would never do this. They're too busy. 
They can't do things like follow the student attorney around every time he goes into a courtroom. But in this case, Jack Skeen took Joseph under his wing and mentored him until he graduated law school and passed the bar, where he was immediately right out of law school appointed as an assistant district attorney in Smith County by Jack Skeen. And once Murphy took office, he continued on the same path as Jack Skeen and David Dobbs. He was one of the prosecuting attorneys in the Mineola Swingers Club incident. And that's another Smith County case for another day. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Grupa for designing and creating our logo. I want to thank today's sponsor, Stamps.com and Casper Mattress, for supporting the show and funding all of the research and trips that the show requires. I want to throw a big shout-out of thanks to all of you listeners. Every day as we're making progress in these cases, I feel more and more pride just to be involved and connected to all of you. Because in every way from buying a scanner to contributing to a cause to sending those emails in to putting me in touch with contacts, every day I realize more and more that the reason that we are successful and the reason we are making progress and the reason that I have the confidence that we are going to make a difference in this American justice system is because of all of you. So please continue to stay in touch. Send those emails into theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Keep sending me new cases at cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Like the Facebook page. Just stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.